morning. Beth and I had a chance to spend a little time worshiping uh, at the beginning of the service with the Ponte Vino congregation. I'm telling you, it is rocking down there. Uh, we could, could barely, we could hear it all the way from up here in the foyer. And God has just been doing some great things uh, with the sense that uh, uh, God gave to a number of people around here. said, so what if we actually became a place that was inviting for a, a congregation to uh, start uh, that could reach out to a, a group of people uh, that uh, God has great love for and wants to have an opportunity for them to hear the gospel in their language. And uh, it is just really cool. Uh, uh, Pastor William has said to us just this past week that the past Sunday that uh, there were almost 100 people in the chapel. Can you imagine that? place barely fits that. So uh, there's just some really cool things that are going on with that. So, well, I want to direct your attention, not just south of uh, us uh, now, but just to a little bit east of us, actually, to Kauffman Stadium. Not because there's a pennant race going on, but there, there was another race, actually, there that's actually captured a wider, the attention of a wider audience uh, than any of those of us that are Royals fans. Uh, new Royals fans or old Royals fans, right? Uh, yeah, there was a competition out at Kauffman Stadium, and uh, I'm telling you, it has gone worldwide. Let's just see what this competition looked like. The pitcher in a 7-1 game. How about the entertainment in between innings? Oh, mustard. Oh, no. Well, I mean, it's the pants. They, yeah. they, uh, we're working against this young man. Kids day. Uh, it's the pants. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, he got... He finally did make it across the finish line, and when he did, he got a <laughs> tremendous ovation from the fans here at Kauffman Stadium. Oh, poor Mustard. <laughs> it's the pants. That's what they were saying. It's, it's the pants. Can you imagine this poor little guy? You know, he's running along, and uh, he's ahead. I mean, he's, he's outpacing Relish. He's going to beat Relish. And uh, the mustard man, uh, his pants just dropped down, and he must be asking himself, you think of that, what is slowing me down? Why, what is going on that all of a sudden just kind of splat right on the poor guy's face? Good thing he was insulated, right? Uh, you know, so I, I, the reason I shared that with you is because I think actually that is a picture of our lives from time to time, isn't it? We're just running along. We may think we're, we're moving along at light speed, making great headway, and then we ask the question, what is happening to me? What is slowing me down? Why did I end up flat on my face? I was ahead. And that can happen in so many ways. It can happen for our young people as they're going through high school and they're just racing through and everything is going really well and all of a sudden just splat. Flat on their face, relationships, whatever it is. Say, I, I didn't even see that coming. It can happen for young people when they race through high school and they do really well and they get into college and stuff hits them that they just never anticipated. And uh, they're just flat on their face and say, how, how in the world did that happen? can happen in other ways as well, too. It can happen in a career that's racing along. And then everything just goes sideways. It can happen in, in marriage. Everything's just moving along, and it's great. And, and then just out of nowhere, it seems, everything just is, is, is so much different than it was. 
I want to talk about that this morning because we really see that in this story as we look at the life of Joseph here. Um, and what, is it, what is it that slows us down? Now, you can imagine the dad. I, I can just picture the scene. After this uh, mustard race is over and Relish apparently won. Nobody knows who won, right? And, uh, and dad's just consoling his son. And he says, you know, he said, man, it was the pants, son. So, someone should have tightened the belt on that mustard suit for you. And, um, and uh, I would guess that little boy probably ha- would have a little more wisdom than his dad and would say, Dad, it's not the pants. It's the suit. You know, the problem wasn't tightening the belt. The problem was that it was wearing a mustard suit in the first place. <laughs> imagine, imagine how much faster he could have gone. And even if he would say, well, they said I had to wear it. Uh, I think we run through race with a mu- life with a mustard suit on. Who, who says you've got to wear the mustard suit? Who says you've got to run like that and, and be tripped up because of a w- wardrobe malfunction or whatever it is? Well, this morning I want to highlight what is one of the primary, if not the primary reason why Christians bog down, stumble, and fall in life. That's what we want to talk about. The primary reason why Christians stumble through life and end up on their face. So would you pray with me as we spend this time? God, we do thank you so much for your word and for the help it is to us. God, it is, it is food and nourishment in our life so often. And I'm thankful that we can gather here and worship together and hear what you're doing in the world, but also to hear what you want to do in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would provide that for us as we spend this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this time and will enjoy this time as we look at the life of Joseph and we learn about the way uh, God worked in his life. And our purpose is not just simply that we can recount the story and know the facts, but that we can figure out what it means for us. And, and here's the reality of God's word. Every time we go to it, the instruction that comes out of it is beneficial for each one of us uniquely. No kidding. There is a reason why God wants you to study this story. There's a reason why God wants you to learn what he has to say to it. And it's unique. It, it is, it, it, the, the character of the thing God wants you to know is congruent with the character of who you are and the life that God has given you. I think one of the dangers that we oftentimes face when we look at God's word is we ask the question, okay, what is it saying I'm supposed to do and what is it saying that I'm supposed to stay away from? And we just get into the sense of that there's this instructive piece and you guys can come in and we all get together and come in on Sunday morning and say, okay, what are we supposed to do next? When the, the reality is God's word wasn't designed to be a set of rules that we need to weekly pay attention to so we don't mess out, uh, uh, flub up or, or uh, miss something that God has told us to do. God's objective for us isn't that we engage in what it is that Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management. That is not good news. That we just kind of figure out what do we do, what don't we do, and then we go home and have lunch. Uh, It is so much more than that. God actually wants us to learn about himself. And so we look at this story and we say, well, it looks like the story of Joseph. It It is not primarily the story of Joseph. It's the story that helps us to see who God is. And that's what you and I need when we walk out of here. Not to do everything exactly the way Joseph did, but to understand God in the way that Joseph understood him. 
because that understanding of God will impact your life and your life and your life and your life and my life in different and remarkable ways. It's not just simply make sure you don't do this this week. I mean, you think about it even in regards to the way we do parenting. And so much of what we do as parents is, I mean, we've done it. You know, this is, kids, you can't do this, and you must do that, and, and no, no, yes, yes, and it's all of that sort of stuff, and I'm telling you, that can tire a kid out, it can tire a parent out, right, when you're just over this, all of these, these things that they've got to do, and that they've got to avoid the lo- uh, along the way, and, and no parent really wants to be that kind of a parent, that's not what we want it to be about, we want it to be about the grand themes of the character of who this child is, we want to know who they are, how God made them, and what their contribution might be to the Lord, where their sweet spot is, what's going to breathe life into them. And the no, no, yes, yes matters, but it only matters because there's this bigger thing that we dream about for them. It's the thing that actually brings life to parenting for the parent and for the child. It's not about, you know, brush your teeth or don't, don't pull your, da- your sister's hair It's about God made you to have an extraordinary, unique, remarkable life. And and that's really what the theme is that matters to us. So we can look at God's word and we ask the question, how does one obey God? And friends, that's important. But that's, that's not the thing that matters the most. It's not how does one obey God. It's how does one live a life for the glory of God. That's what it's intended to be about. How can you live your life for the glory of God? One of those things sings and the other doesn't. Make sure you don't do this. That will never sing. But when we contemplate this, God, how, how can I use my life for your glory? That's about adventure. That's about uniqueness because it'll be different melody for each of us. That's about a story that happens in your life that is fun for everyone to hear and for you to tell. You see, that's what God wants. And the reason why we look at this story is because this story tells us what God is like. And when we know what God is like, we know what he intends for us. And when we know that he intends for us to live this life that Jesus said is to the full and rich and abundant and unique a life that sings, then then we've discovered what God wants us to know as we walk through this life. The gospel is a life intended to be lived to the full. So when we look at this story, we don't look at it and say, well, it's a good thing Joseph showed up because he saved Egypt and everybody else. The real thing is it's a good thing God exists. It's a good thing there is a God just like this using people just like this, regular people. Frankly, when we look at this story, we'll realize that uh, there wasn't really that much that was regular about Joseph's life and his family's life. I mean, you just read the first couple of verses of chapter 37, and you realize that there was just immense dysfunction that was going on in this household. We'll talk about that next week or the week after that, but the reality is this, is that God, God shows up in our world and wants to show himself to us in order that we might live a life marked by our awareness of who he is and what he's called us to. And that life might, as a result, be characterized by courage. Because we know who God is, we know who we are, and we know what he invites us into.
Last week we talked about the relentless advance of God's promises for the world. There's nothing that can circumvent what it is that he wants to do. There is a, there is a, a majesty and a might to God. And nothing will get in the way of what God intends to do for his people and in the world. There's nothing that gets in the way. We saw plenty of darkness as we walked through chapters 34 and 35. But in the midst of the darkness, there is this mighty, sovereign God who restores broken lives, who restores broken places, who restores a broken world. And he, and he gives back to it what he intended for it when he created it. Peace, human flourishing, uh, all of which happens now uh, in the spite of the way it was broken by humankind, he pours back, wants to pour back those kinds of things. And there is nothing, no circumstance in life that cannot be used for his glory. We don't have to be careful even that we mess up. We don't have to be nervous about whether we mess up and, and pay attention that there's nothing he won't use for his glory. The only thing we have to care about is our heart that we would care enough to be sure that our heart is in surrender to him. It's the only thing we have to care about. And even when we mess up, we don't have to worry about it because guess what? He uses everything for the relentless advance of his covenant promise to his people and to the world. Everything. I mean, think about it for a minute. We talk about forgiveness of sins and God does this incredible thing, this transformative thing in our lives that he actually takes all of our sins, this, our rebellion against God, and through Christ's death on the cross, it is completely forgiven. Now, if he can do that with sin, if he can actually, with sin, bring per forgiveness, if he has the power to forgive our sins, is it unreasonable for us to imagine that he not only has the power to forgive our sins, but to use them? Imagine that, that God can actually use our sins for his glory. And he does. He does. There is nothing that gets in the way of the advancement of the glory of God in our lives. He not only forgives our sins, friends, he uses them. Isn't it interesting that we actually think that we don't want to tell anybody what they were? The things that he forgave, we just want to kind of keep them back there and bury them. You know what he does? In this story, he pulls them out and displays them. Because then we get, to, we get to admire and worship God that even uses that stuff for his glory and for his sake. That's the kind of God we have. So that's what we see first of all. And we can be people filled with courage because we can have such confidence in a God that uses that stuff in our lives in the world for, to advance his glory along the way. But I want to go a little bit further this morning and I want to look, uh, uh, slow this whole thing down and uh, just spend some time in chapter 37, actually just a part of it. We'll spend a couple of weeks here in, in Genesis chapter 37, but I want to just reduce it to, uh, to uh, uh, something we see here. We see two dreams and one reaction. We'll talk about all of the other family stuff later on. But what we know is this. We know that this isn't a great household to live in. There's all kinds of conflict and animosity taking place. And it doesn't get any better when Joseph comes along and announces to his brother what he just dreamed. 
two dreams, really. The first one is described in verse 6. He said, I had this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf, the one that represents me and who I am, rose and stood upright, right? And your sheaves, the ones that represent who you are, guess what they did? They bowed down to me. Isn't that a great story? You know, you got all these brothers just sitting around going, harumph. You know, that, you know, that just ticks us off more, Joseph. You know, that's just kind of the, the sense with it. So that's the first dream that the brothers would submit to him. And then a second dream comes along a little bit later on. And this is even more remarkable because this is not just about the brothers who are represented here as the 11 stars, but it's about the sun and the moon who bow down, mom and dad. And mom's dead. She's gone. So it's not about her physically bowing down, but it's a statement about the way God would use Joseph for the whole of that family line. That he would be revered and regarded because, because he was important not just simply to his living brothers, but to the whole of the family line along the way. And so Joseph has two dreams. And this is significant. Later on when he's speaking to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh has two dreams, Joseph says, well, you had that dream twice. That means it really matters. And here we see him in 37 having a dream twice. This is a big deal. In fact, Joseph concludes that God has actually used this dream to give light to them, to him and to the family um, in the midst of all of the darkness. That God has actually spoken through the dream. And uh, this, is, this is really extraordinary and it is important, particularly in that time. In that time, God talks oftentimes about using prophets and those people who have dreams to be able to shine light, to give clarification as to who he is and what he's about. It happens over and over again. We don't have the light of the revelation that comes from this book, but God used other things as well too. And he used dreams and he used prophets along the way. Even in other cultures, we see the value of dreams. Pharaoh had people who, could, who he hoped would interpret dreams for them because there was a sense of it. This was, something, this was something that was regarded in that culture as extraordinary ways that um, they would hear what they need to know. And uh, so Joseph was one of, uh, J Joseph heard that. In our culture, we might say if someone had an extraordinary dream, we might say, well, I think you might have had a little bit too many anchovies on the pizza last night. Um, but that's not the way they would represent this. I mean, this, this, it was difficult to write this off as anything other than the voice of God, yet that's what you see happening here. Dreams were powerful and they were revelatory. In fact, even we hear stories today in various parts of the world where there is, there's no sense of God's word, no clarity in regards to who God is, and people have dreams. We've heard these amazing stories that are happening in different cultures, different parts in the world where people have a dream and God speaks to them along, along the way. And even, even in our culture, there are times when God has said he's, he, he would do this and he's prophecy, he said in Scripture that he would continue to do it. That there are those times when it's not the anchovies on the pizza, but it's actually the means by which God speaks to, encourages, challenges his people. I mean, this is the primary means by which he does it. And in the Alpha course, actually, there's an evening where we talk about uh, the value of God's word. But, but he speaks to his people 
in so many different ways. But the question for us this morning is this. When Joseph shared these dreams, do you think he was taunting his brothers? I mean, the family is dysfunctional. And there's all sorts of animosity going on. But there's nothing in the story, as it's described here, that leads us to believe that Joseph intended to give his brothers a hard time. That he intended to taunt them. He was sure that what he had dreamed was actually the light of God in the midst of the darkness. The God for whom darkness is never dark is showing Joseph what he cannot see on his own. So that's why he approaches his brothers and his father lets them know what these, what these dreams were. Now there are two things I want to say about this. Two things I want us to note about these dreams and then we can talk about the implications that it has for us. The first is this. Nobody liked the dream. Uh, uh, it, I mean, it, it, was, it was hard to take. And, and you see that all over the place. They were angry at him before. They're just irate afterwards. And even the father, you know, just says, what do you think? Who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? Do you actually believe I mean, there was all that disbelief, but it was more than just disbelief. There was, a, there was a sense of which what the world you're describing to us, Joseph, is a world where all of us lose everything that matters to us. And, uh, and, and we know how important family line and place in a family w- was, how much it mattered. We already saw last week that son number one, son number two, son number three, blow it and they're out and now we're down to son number four. And that position, that's a big deal. And then everything steps from there. There is a sense of what I have is based on my, my power. My power comes from my position. And here's Joseph describing a dream in which they relinquish it all. Why, why would anybody ever think that was anything but bad news? What you're describing here. This is a horrific outcome. We lose everything in that dream. Joseph, you're trying to take away what's rightfully mine. If anything, you'll bow down to me. You're the kid brother. We lose everything in that dream of yours. You've got to be dreaming. We lose position. We lose influence. We lose power. We lose possessions. I I, I, I felt like as you were sharing this that, that you're describing a place in which we surrender everything. And he was essentially saying that. He says, I have a dream, and in it you have, an, you have nothing. That, that's really what he's saying here. I, I had it, and you did not. You, you didn't have anything that you've come to trust. Nothing. Power, influence, future, prestige. You, in this dream, you lose it all. So that's the first observation. The second one is this. This dream describes the best possible result that these brothers and this dad could imagine for their life. No kidding. Think about it. In this dream, they're bowing in front of Joseph, and we know the rest of the story, standing as a ruler in Egypt who has saved all all of the people of Egypt, nations beside that. In, in fact, his father and his family as well. That dream, if it comes to pass, 
is the best possible news those brothers could have ever hoped for. I mean, isn't it interesting that the dream that they think is scandalous and horrific, they lose everything, actually is the means by which they gain everything they have in order to continue to live. Joseph was describing the very way that their lives would be saved. What upset them so was actually the very thing that God was going to use to save them. If this dream doesn't happen, guess what, brothers? You're as good as dead. And all you can do right now is see it as bad news. Why? Because in order for the good news to come, you have to give up everything. Everything you clung to, everything that you said, this will be my power, this will be my source of stuff, this will be my future. Every single bit of that, you give up. And when you give it up, you will one day realize that it was the best thing that ever happened in your life. That's what we see. All they could see is how bad it was. And should that really surprise us? I mean, it is hard to let go, isn't it? It is so hard to let go. Here's an interesting thing. JFK, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Profiles in Courage, that we talked about last week, and Profiles of Those Eight Senators, we now know, or almost completely certain, he never wrote the book. One of his speechwriters wrote it, and he got the Pulitzer Prize for it, and his name was on the cover, but he never wrote it. People asked him about it. Guess what? The book titled Profiles and Courage was, had the name of a person who never had the courage to tell everybody the way it really was. I mean, how can you walk away from your name on the cover of a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It is hard to let go. And yet the path to courage in this story comes from the choice to surrender. The path to what we need comes from the decision to give away what we thought we had to have. We lose everything we think matters and then we gain that which really matters though we might not know it yet. This is the baseline for a courageous life. Surrender. The only way to live in God's will is to put aside our will. And we pull all of this stuff close we pull our stuff, we pull our reputation, we, we pull our future, we, we pull all of it in and, and we say, uh, I need it. And we discover that we're wearing a mustard suit. That's what we've got. We're really wearing a mustard suit. God wants so much more for our lives. And we're unwilling to let go. How does that happen? 
How do we let go? Jesus leads into it. In fact, he is the example for us. In the midst of what would require the most courage of anybody's life, Jesus is there just about to be crucified and he says to his father, not my will, but yours. And if that was the way Jesus prayed, don't you think it makes sense for us to say the same thing? Not my will, but yours. I'm not hanging on anymore. You know, there's this old song, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. To say, God, I want to live that life. Not my will, but yours. One of the primary reasons why we slow and we stumble in our life is because we've decided to still hang on to the mustard suit. So what does God want you to let go of? I don't know what that is. But I wonder if you could just start to ask that question this morning and spend some time there this week. What does God want you to let go of? What does God want me to let go of? What does it mean for me to say, not, not my will, but yours, O oh Lord? Not, not my stuff, not my plans, not my reputation, not my retirement, not, my, not any of that. Not my will, but yours. What, what does that look like? Well, let me just uh, try to serve a prompt uh, up to you in regards to that. Areas where you might want to evaluate that. Because these are the things in our culture that we know are so easy, so, so difficult to be able to let go of. One of them is time. Uh, we, we want to orchestrate our schedule. In fact, we've got it just all zipped up and we can barely keep it together and the stuff on our plate. And then God comes along and he invites us into time with him on a daily basis. No kidding, on a daily basis. On a, on a daily basis to spend time soaking up his word and listening to what it is that he wants to say to us. To worship together. I mean, Jesus did it every day. First thing in the morning was his custom on a daily basis, to gather together with other Christ followers and others and strengthen one another and encourage one another and be encouraged by them as well. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says. And you know what we say? We say, you know what? I just got too much, I just got too much on my plate. And what if we're hanging on to the mustard suit? When, when God just says, here, here's the way I want you to live. I want you, I want you to say, not my will, but yours. And frankly, to sit down, take a breath, open God's word, is us saying, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. The category of time. Yeah, the category is a category of stuff, the, the treasure. We see God that doesn't, that doesn't um, he's pretty clear really on what he wants for us. You know, the question for us in our household isn't whether we give 10% of our resources to his work, but what we do with the rest of it. You know, when and how much more and what occasion, how do we use it um, for him? 
rather than just kind of hanging on to that stuff that, uh, that, that, that he, he doesn't want us to hang on and he wants us to have the courage to let go even as, as, as exposed as we may feel in moments like that. Another aspect is the self-concern and the, the, the management of an image. I think this is incredibly difficult for our young people in particular. I mean, I mean, there's just such a sense of, in regards to their to parents, and I, I think it's tougher for them than it ever was for me, uh, to just don't look like you're listening too hard to what your parents have to say, or you're not cool anymore. And God says, I want you to honor your mom and dad. I, that's the way I want you to do it. And, and it's so easy to lose the approval of friends that will think you uncool after that. And yet, God says to us, are you willing to pray the prayer, not my will, not my plans, not my stuff, not my reputation, but yours, and let go of the mustard suit. There are other areas in regards to that where that takes place is we're less concerned about ourselves and more concerned about others as we serve them. It's easy to point people to resources. Oh, it looks like you're going to need some help from them or why don't you just, yeah, I, I got a great phone number for you. What if actually God wants you? Uh, what if his will is for him to use you? and walk courageously into that situation because it's not other people that God has brought, uh, brought them up to, but ourselves as well. And then the fourth area is this area of conformity. To let go of conformity, this cookie-cutter sense, we see what every other Christian is doing and we think we need to be just like that when there are some unique characteristics of your life that God actually wants to use. Don't try to be somebody else let go of let go of that need to look like everybody else to be a cookie cutter christian how is god going to use you and so we see andrew who's headed to france god's given him a passion for languages and people you you've probably seen him around here working with haya the hillcrest young adults ministry just this extraordinary outgoing regard for people and 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 he's walking he's walking forward with it into the next stage of his life because he knows who he is. Knows enough to know what that next step might look like. What does it look like for us? What does it look like for you to see God's will and put my will aside and to let go of the mustard suit and find myself running through life at a pace I never imagined before because I let go of the stuff that I thought was so important. I let go of the stuff that, that I never thought I would ever let go of and I find myself racing along at the speed of light, not in terms of miles per second, but in terms of I see the light of God, I know what he's saying to me, and I'm going to race forward into whatever it is he is doing. That's what God wants for you. And that's what he wants for me. For us to be able to hear what might, first of all, seem so offensive and scary and then realize there is a God who tells me to let go 
because the news is so much better when I do. What does it look like for you? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray that you would guide us as we go from this place and that you would use your word to guide us along the way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.